Whoa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. This is Connor Hallway of the Golden Hours Podcast, and this is a GDP Minute. Um, listen, man, wild talk. We just ran an episode with Deval Patrick, former governor, presidential candidate, and it was tough stuff, man. I'll be honest, I've run about 200 episodes now. We scrapped some at the beginning because we broke a hard drive, and I was really nervous to run this episode because things are so tense right now in terms of race relations and police brutality. And I don't always know what I'm talking about. I don't, when it comes to this stuff, I don't know how to make progress. And so it was really refreshing hearing Duvall what to do. I was like, dude, what do we do in this situation? Like I'm a white dude. What do I do? Like literally I want, I want to leverage my brand to make sure I'm making, I'm making the right decision here in supporting everybody I care about. You know, we created this brand so it was totally inclusive. What do I do? How do I actually take action and not just post on social media and into the void? How do I actually get my feet moving on this? And he said, yo, just put your guard down and listen. And really stuck with me, man. Um, I learned a lot. And Duvall also talked in great length about racial tensions. He talked about how he's dealt with racism across all spectrums of his life. He discussed what his ideal police force would look like, talked about defunding the police. And so if any of these things are not so transparent to you right now, I hope you can get it from the episode. Additionally, man, I probably said one or two stupid things in there. I know I said a couple jokes that definitely bombed and were not the right timing whatsoever, but I hope my transparency comes across. I want to thank the research team on this one. Shouts out to Lexi Slugs and B for holding it down. Shouts out to Jack for all the fresh, fresh content. And um, we're going to keep it busting, man. Thank you guys so much. And I hope you can you can get something from this. And share it with a friend, man. If you got some friends, just share it with a friend if you get some value. All right. I'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. That's so weird. That's like how I end a phone call. What the hell? Anyway, here's Duvall's Golden Hour. Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just you forgot to enter. Hi, I'm Deval Patrick, and this is my golden hour. Governor Patrick, can you see me? Hey. Hey, hold on. Can't hear you real quick. Governor Patrick, can you hear me slash see me? Yeah. Can you hear me okay? Hey, man, thanks for making this happen. Thank you, Connor. Thank you so much for having me. I was just um, telling Patrice, I think I harassed her like 17 times to make this happen. So I appreciate them not thinking I'm a psycho. Oh, no, come on. Thank you very much. And thanks for what you're doing. How have you, uh, have you been adapting? I'm going to be honest with you. Well, before we move on, I have my three producers on the phone with me. Okay. I got Sarah Slugs, B, and Lexi, and they did a kick-ass job doing research for this. You guys want to say what's up to the governor? Hi, hey, Governor Patrick. Hey guys. We're hey guys. psyched, man. We're psyched. Thank you very much. I appreciate you. Um, I'll be blatantly honest to start. I, this is my 202nd episode and this is the only time I've ever been actually nervous to talk. Oh, come on. Well, it's the truth because it's just, things are so volatile right now and I want to make sure that I'm not saying anything to totally upset anybody. You know what I'm saying? I do. I do. How have no, you been? It's such an interesting, it's, it's, it's an interesting and important point. Um, I saw a tweet 
that my wife shared with me that she'd gotten from somebody else. Um, a person said to all our white friends who keep asking what you can do, and his response was open, uh, let your guard down and listen. And I think the letting your guard down is uh, seems small, but it's no, it's no small thing. And it's a critical first step. Well, it's just like being a white dude right now is the worst online. Like in, in terms really? of, well, just in terms of it's, I think a lot of people in my position are scared to speak up, mm. you know? And so I'm hoping that throughout this episode that you can better educate myself and my team on on how to actually be productive. Bye. Okay. Hey, well, thank you so much again. Are you tucked out in the Berkshires? I am. Yeah. How about you? Where are you back in Boston? I'm actually at my mom's condo in Lexington. Okay. But we actually met um, a few a few years back, probably about five or six years back at a fundraiser down the vineyard. Oh, wow. I, I think well, we were raising again. Three. Nice to meet you, man. Thank you. Um, so to start, can you just give a quick synopsis of who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Deval Patrick. I'm the former governor of Massachusetts and the founder and chairman of Together Fund. Sweet. Um, so, so to start off, I think you grew up in the Southside Projects in Chicago, correct? Yeah. And so, and you've also, you've had an incredibly, incredibly successful career in both politics and and business and has the racism you've experienced over the years, has it, has it diversified in different circles? Has it changed? How, how has your experience been? You know, I, w- I would say that the, um, you know, I read a, a comment, uh, a letter from a friend of mine who's actually a, a college president uh, in Boston, uh, African-American, who, who said, among other things, that he'd been called the N-word in every city and every state he'd ever worked in. Um, and I think, uh, I think we've all had that experience. You know, I've, I've, uh, I remember, uh, being called, you know, I came to Massachusetts when I was 14 on a scholarship to go to Milton Academy, which was a radical change in my, uh, surroundings and, uh, and experiences. Um, I don't remember a time going off campus in those days, um, when I wasn't, uh, called a name or. Uh, or sometimes made to feel physically uh, uh, threatened, but I was called that by a faculty on campus um, at the time as well, who thought he was being familiar and uh, uh, and funny. Um, you know, I have not had uh, uh, experiences that were um, as um, as physically uh, hurtful or, um, you know, as devastating, of course, as what we saw in the videotaped uh, killing of George Floyd a couple of weeks ago. But uh, I've been involved in those cases. I have um, litigated um, those cases against uh, um, police officers and departments, both as head of the Justice Department and when I was an attorney um, working in private practice or at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And, you know, every one of us knows the experience of being stopped while driving, um, especially if it's a nice car in a white neighborhood. I was pulled over sitting in the passenger seat um, in a black SUV um, uh, with a black driver when I was governor of the Commonwealth. And that black driver was a plainclothes state police officer. Wow. In the city? Uh, what's that? Were you in the city? I wasn't in the city of Boston, but on the Mass Pike. 
Um, look, many of these stories that people have been telling, the kind of torrent of personal narrative um, that folks have been sharing, um, is are what my wife sometimes refers to as the indignities du jour. Um, you learn to, um, uh, most of us, I think, to kind of tamp them down and, and put them aside. I hadn't even remembered being pulled over, um, except uh, uh, recently when a, uh, when a white staffer at the time who was in the back seat reminded me of that. And it's what you do to survive is what you do to... Uh, 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 to function. I think for a lot of us, this moment and these stories are surfacing um, and, uh, and might uh, do the whole country a lot of good in, uh, as, they, as we do. Now, when, when you were governor of Massachusetts, we tried to do a little bit of research, but were there any specific police brutality cases or police force cases that you had to intervene with in the state? You know, as I recall, because Trayvon happened during your tenure, correct? That's right. That's right. I mean, I, I, in fact, I remember. I remember. Um, I'm pretty sure it was after Trayvon Martin was shot that I was asked by a member of the uh, state house, you know, political press, um, how I felt about it, and I, I just remember snapping. I, you know, it's usually pretty patient. If anything, I'm pretty wordy. I stink at soundbite sound bites. And I remember just saying, I'm sick of it. I'm just sick of it. And I, I didn't even, I, I didn't even want to get in to more than that because I am, I'm exhausted trying to persuade, um, white people that the, that the racism we know and experience, um, is real. Now I want to be clear. I have had um, the great good fortune of having deep, intimate, loving relationships with people across all kinds of differences. So I don't go in uh, expecting the worst of other people. But I do go in, um, you know, to all kinds of interactions and all kinds of boardrooms, knowing that some of the people I'm about to meet expect the worst of me. And that I'm going to have to persuade them um, by my uh, by my behavior, my decorum, the way I speak, um, how much activity I bring to uh, uh, to my listening, uh, that I'm okay. And I get that, but you know, a lot of a lot of us are just exhausted, um, exhausted by that. And that is the thread, if you will, Connor. I'm sorry to go on, but no, I appreciate that. Thank you. That's the thread that we recognize in, in the nonchalant kind of matter of fact, matter of fact, suffocating of, uh, of George Floyd by that Minnesota, um, Minneapolis police officer. I mean, it was, the video was so outrageous that there's, there was no dispute with this one. It's like, it's so in your face. Like it was so blatant. There's well, you no, say, you say there's no dispute. I appreciate you're saying that it was four or five years ago that we saw the videotaped strangulation of Eric Garner. To me, 
that was undeniable as well. To an awful lot of other people, it was undeniable. And there was outrage. Um, but as I recall, um, the grand jury in New York um, decided not to indict. Uh, I remember trying a case um, uh, in Boston that involved a, uh, on behalf of a black medical student who was um, making out in the back seat of his girlfriend's car with her. Um, and, uh, and a couple of uh, police officers came up and tapped on the window and asked what was going on. And, uh, you know, they were parked in a parking lot in Grove Hall, bothering no one. Um, and she spoke up, she was white, and she spoke up and said, this is my car, this is my boyfriend, and they didn't like it, and they hauled him out of the car and harassed him and roughed him up, put him in handcuffs and, uh, and brought him to uh, the police station to spend the night. And uh, when he was trying to have, through a lawsuit, his dignity restored, which is so often what a part of what these lawsuits uh, are about, the fact that these two police officers uh, talked about the written statements they had made, as they were required to, to make, independent of each other, without talking to each other immediately after the incident, and that it was a complete coincidence that those statements were word for word the same. Same, yeah. Right down to the misspellings and the poor punctuation. Um, and and even then, the jury said, it's okay. We're going to move on um, and exonerated them. You know, we have we have excused a lot for a long, long time, and uh, and I think that day uh, that that day's over. So obviously, people are pissed. Past two weeks, just everything's heightened, and I have this stance that obviously the looting is terrible, and especially the first day, but it was the catalyst to get nationwide attention on this like never before. Would you agree? No, I wouldn't. Um, and I, I say that respectfully. I think the looting, I mean, I, I don't condone it. Um, and I'm not going to try to explain it away other than just the, you know, the, uh, the result of accumulated rage and people being pushed just too far. I think my concern um, was uh, less so now, but it was, that we would be so focused on the small number of people um, doing property damage that we wouldn't focus on the attention uh, called by the vast majority of people peacefully uh, to the damage done to life and limb. And I think the focus has on the whole remained there and it's enormously um, important. And if anything, the crowds have gotten bigger and they've become more diverse, which is, which is also extraordinarily powerful and important, I think. What I mean is, I don't think people would have paid as close attention to everything going on right now as they are if there wasn't such an outrage initially. Does that make sense? I think that makes sense. I don't think the outrage necessarily um, is more you know, that it depends on the violence expressed in, as violence in order to get the attention. But I take your point. Okay. Um, so Obviously, people are so tense. I feel like, especially kids my age, we want just a plan, like just yeah. a plan. Like, what do we do? I want to, I personally want to leverage my platform in the city so I can actually go be productive and do something, not just post on social media 
into yep. the void? Like, what can we actually do? You know, I, I have, uh, I have a bunch of ideas. Um, you know, campaign zero has an eight point plan. Um, there are 40 some odd really terrific recommendations that came out of President Obama's commission on 21st century um, policing. There are some very specific ideas that apply everywhere um, and some that um, uh, that will be very uh, high impact in particular uh, places. We will get to that and we must get to that. And we have to sustain our attention and, and the pressure uh, until we do get to that. But there is a period right now, Connor, and I, I, I just want you to try to understand this, where it is enormously important, um, as I was describing to you that tweet just before we started to recall, that, um, that white people who want to help, who care, um, let down their guard and listen. Because the issues around excessive policing, um, the militarization and command and control of our uh, policing cultures in many uh, uh, cities and towns, um, and the impact that that had uh, on uh, has had on so many black men, most recently uh, George Floyd, is really just a part of a whole. Um, we should modernize policing, but we we have to get on with making the criminal justice system actually just. Um, and we've got to move on to the brutality in our, you know, in our housing policies and practices, our healthcare policies and practices, our education policies and practices. There is a common thread through uh, all of this, and that explains the fiscal and political retreat from so much of it for so long. Um, and that has to be uh, confronted. And by the way, everybody has a stake uh, in doing so. So if you were in a position as a policymaker right now, what would your first step be? I know it's such a broad issue. I know it's. Yeah. And it's an impossible question to get quite right. I think probably or answer to get quite right. I think probably the first thing would be, um, to convene as many of the voices willing to, um, uh, to talk and who, um, uh, are prepared to engage and, and listen. And that's going to be, you know, organizations, uh, like, uh, the legal defense fund who have been working on where I used to work have been working on these issues for, uh, uh, a generation or more. Um, but also some of the young new activists in community, um, who have been organizing uh, the marchers and enforcing, if you will, uh, order and peace, um, and let them let them come in and be a part of uh, you know so much of what we're experiencing. Don't you sense is people feeling unheard and unseen? Um, and I think the first thing uh, good leaders have to do is to hear and to see those voices, and then I think we have to work toward a common uh, agenda. Not everything's going to happen, but there's some things that ought to. You know, the, 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 if you've noticed the, um, and found uh, as moving as I, uh, the images of police officers who have taken a knee when the protesters do, that, that show of solidarity in the minds of some or respect in the minds of others is a powerful de-escalation tool, right? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a functioning, workable alternative 
um, to a show of force uh, and a show of con control. Um, so de-escalation as a strategy needs to be understood, needs to be more widely uh, deployed. Community policing we know works, right? It's get out of the car, build relationships with people, uh, restorative justice as a strategy uh, works, but we gotta get you know, to root causes around you know, generational poverty, hopelessness. Um, and, uh, and there's a lot, I think, that uh, in policy uh, and in leadership we can do to help. So just to peel back the layers real quick for anyone listening, just to be as practical as I can, you're saying right now it would be beneficial if people in a position like me, like white people, just shut up and just listen for some time. Yeah. And, you know, and let your guard down because it's going to feel like you're being accused. It, you know, it's going to be, it's going to feel like, uh, um, like, uh, it's personal um, uh, to you, but you know, ask yourself, what do you do when you know the cranky uncle at Thanksgiving um, crosses the line? What do you do? What do you say? Or do you just roll your eyes and say, "Well, that's Uncle So and So." Well, usually he's drunk. <laughs> hey, you know what? I have stopped going long, long ago to baseball games and football games because I just especially with my kids when they were smaller, because I just get tired of having to listen to the drunk fan a few rows over, shout the N-word and ape at the, at the players on the, on the field. It's, it's now, imagine what it would have been like if it weren't I, um, but some white guy in the stands who said, cut it out, you know, you're, you're embarrassing yourself and you ruin the day for him or her. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I get what you're saying. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to laugh. I was just, no, 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 no. I, I'm, 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 all I'm saying is, you know, there is a, there are, um, uh, issues in, in our, in our culture that come up short of, uh, the violence we saw in the George Floyd tape but that are a part of a whole and we're all going to have to take some responsibility for, uh, for turning that um, around. And an awful lot of it happens when no black person um, is in the room or at the, or at the table, a part of the conversation, you got to call it out. Got to be brave enough to do so. So you were saying you want to demilitarize police. I also, I'd seen a bit on you on CNN where you're saying something similar. So if you were to employ a police force, like, it's your perfect police force. What would it look like? Well, and I say this as someone who has had um, uh, also very uh, positive uh, interactions with uh, with law enforcement at various uh, at various times. I think um, we saw in many respects the best of the professionalism, restraint, and respect of law enforcement in the aftermath of the marathon bombing, for example. Um, where we set, we, we, we tried at the beginning to set a tone um, uh, of turning to each other rather than on each other in the midst of, uh, of crisis and, uh, and turmoil. I'd want to see a police force where the, where the membership was recruited from the neighborhoods they were um, policing, where they um, had the resources and the time and the numbers to be able to be out 
walking, building relationships with members of the uh, community, be, becoming familiar, understanding uh, the backstories of, uh, uh, of people, uh, where we uh, had extensive training in de-escalation as the first uh, strategy when dealing with um, uh, highly tense, highly dangerous um, uh, situations. You know, where the response uh, to a uh, threat of force or bodily harm is something short of the training today, which is to empty your revolver. Um, so if you uh, feel, and I'll, you know, we'll get to the point where, um, uh, to, the, to the question whether people, so why do so many people so instantly feel threatened in the presence of a black person? that that person is presumed dangerous, um, that, um, you know, there is, you can do things um, often short of, um, you know, emptying every bullet into that, uh, uh, into that person in order for you to get um, a control of a, of a highly dangerous um, uh, situation. But, you know, there are other things that we do um, that um, have put additional um, uh, strain on on policing that just having a better police force isn't going to solve, right? We have um, we have pulled way back over the last few decades in the amount of mental health services available um, to people. Why, while at all sorts of levels, the amount of stress in people's lives has been has been on the rise. And when that stress explodes in uh, criminal um, behavior, well, we, we leave it to the police to deal uh, with that, whether they have the actual training to do so. Well, we need resources that are you know, targeted toward our wellness um, that, uh, that relieves some of that strain on, uh, on policing, uh, particularly in, in rural communities and in, and in urban communities. Today. Now, what about mental health evaluations for police? in regular mental health evaluations for police? Do you think that'd be beneficial? Of course. Um, you know, the, so, and some forces do this, by the way, Connor, you may know. Um, some do it regularly. There has been some pushback. And so I'm going to be careful not to push with uh, paint with too broad a brush uh, here. Some resistance from some of the um, police unions to um, the consequences of, uh, if you will, failing um, a mental health evaluation, you know, that you are um, suspended or in some cases even uh, uh, subject to um, dismissal um, if you don't uh, conform, conform. There are all kinds of uh, protections in many uh, police contracts that make it hard to do the, uh, uh, or hard to, uh, well, hard to do and then hard to have stick the kind of common sense response that uh, that you want to do in the interest of uh, of everybody, and and that's got to be that's got to be looked at. So, what would that look like? Like every three months, you're you're a mass state trooper. You have to check in with a clinical psychologist, and they ask I, I, questions. I, or... Yeah, I think you probably have to get a, a a mental health expert to tell you what the right frequency is, what the degree of intervention uh, ought to be, or whether it's you know, every three months or after, um, or, 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 you know, is it every three months or whatever it is on a regular cadence? 
uh, do you also uh, add in after some uh, particularly, uh, you know, serious um, uh, incident like a police shooting or some other kind of violent uh, altercation? You've got to know that some of the police officers who have been who have been ordered to um, you know disperse marchers or to um, you know just get in the marchers' um, faces instead of step back and give them their um, their speech. You have to know that that's on the minds and hearts of some of those officers. It's not something that um, uh, to a person they enjoy uh, or an order they necessarily agree with, um, but. Uh, um, but they are responsible to follow um, orders. So how you think about when um, to ask in a, if you will, macho culture um, to insist that people um, take care of themselves for their own sake, but also for the sake of the safety of the community they serve is something I think you'd probably have to get a better, uh, more studied opinion on from a mental health expert. If I had you know, if I were in leadership, that's exactly the kind of thing I'd be, kind of questions I'd be asking. I, I can just see how there would be pushback saying like, I don't need to check in at a therapist once every three months. Like, I'm fine. I don't need to do this. I can, I could see why there'd be resistance to that. Especially as you said, and the police force is pretty masculine. So. And it, but, it, you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't. The fact that, well, it shouldn't surprise us because, you know, you see this same behavior in everybody else. <laughs> Lots of people who are, who, uh, who think um, uh, mental health services are not for them because there's nothing wrong. Well, it's just uh, a stigma. I mean, and my generation's peeling that back a little bit. I think people are a yes. little more comfortable with therapy. Yeah. But we got to have the resources, right, to meet that need. And that's, uh, that's another example of things that we have disinvested in uh, over a long period of time. We have to build that back. What are your thoughts on developing like a third party company to review police interaction? Because I don't, I'll be honest, I'm not well versed enough on it, but I mm -hmm. do know if you get in trouble in the police department, it's the police who are reviewing you for the most part. Yeah. So sometimes these are referred to as citizen review boards and, um, and I've seen some work exceptionally well uh, and, uh, and some less so. The notion of um, third-party disinterested review of the most serious um, uh, uh, excessive uh, force incidents, I think, is that's it's a no-brainer. But again, um, in more than a few uh, of the contracts that police unions have with um, with municipalities, that kind of thing is is uh, is blocked. And as I say, I think that's the sort of thing we have to. We have to be willing to confront. Police unions are very powerful politically. Um, they are uh, important, but also powerful. And um, but no, no interest of any kind should be permitted to bully uh, leaders into uh, uh, into avoiding solutions that just make us all better and stronger as a community. Where has the third party been effective? Like examples. So if I remember correctly, um, there was a, uh, a uh, citizen review board put in place in Los Angeles after uh, the Rodney King 
uh, videotaped beating and the riots that followed in South Central after he was acquitted by a state uh, jury. By the way, there was also a federal civil rights prosecution after that that was uh, successful, successful, did result in a conviction. And I believe shortly after that, there was a citizen uh, review board. It doesn't mean it all, it has always worked, but there is a mechanism for, um, for, for third-party uh, review. This was one of the uh, recommendations that was a part of the work we did in Chicago after the Laquan McDonald videotape was uh, released. You know what I'm talking about? The, I'm unfamiliar. This is a more recent uh, example of a, uh, of a young man who was um, shot, I think, mostly in the back uh, several times, ca- caught on, uh, on videotape. The videotape was not released uh, for many, many months and after a lot of uh, litigation. And when it was, um, it created a um, political and social firestorm uh, in Chicago. And I think in some respects um, uh, can, uh, can be said to have led to the end of, uh, of, of the then mayor's um, time as mayor. He decided he was coming up on re-election and decided not to run again. And the person who's the mayor today was the chair of that um, of that task force, and I worked with her as a special advisor. And they they did really serious work, and they had a lot of uh, terrific um, uh, recommend recommendations. And I believe the citizen review board was one of them. So early days, but there again, they had, there was a fractured relationship by the uh, by the police as a whole and the community as a whole. A complete breakdown in in trust based on breaches of trust over a period of time that had gone unaccounted for. Um, and, uh, and was the, was the group elected by the community? No, I don't believe so. I believe it was appointed, but there were different entities that had, uh, I think I'm remembering this right. That had authority to, to appoint some of the seats, you know, the city leadership had some community groups had, uh, had some, that kind of thing. What are your thoughts? There's a big movement online right now, especially on defunding the police completely. And I got a lot of questions before this about we should just defund the police. We should defund the police. I don't really have a stance on it. I don't know enough about it, but I do know my guy show from it's Boston was wondering if there was some sort of defunding, how would they, how would most police departments in Massachusetts reallocate the resources? I really don't. I really don't know. I'm I'm fascinated by the. I think I, I understand what's motivating it. You know, it, it feels a little to me like the, like the calls uh, we have heard to abolish ICE, um, because the uh, the culture um, and uh, and the outcomes are so, you know, uh, routinely um, bad. Um, and I, you know, I, I get it, um, uh, but somebody still has to do that job. The question is, what is, what is it we want that job to be? And I think the same is true of police. I, it's, I, I, I understand it. Um, I think as an expression of how much relatively we have funded the control of people in communities and, the uh, you know, the, the, I guess that's a way to put it, the control of people in communities rather than the ability uh, or as compared to the ability of people in communities um, 
to make a path for themselves uh, and a way and a way up. So we talked about uh, mental health services and how they have been uh, gradually uh, underfunded or defunded over time. The same can be true of schools um, in uh, uh, in urban communities. It can be it can be said of investment in business and in housing um, in uh, in black communities and poor. Uh, communities. And so I, th- I think that's what um, defunding the police is meant to point to, that we need to align our allocation of resources to what we say our values are um, and move away from suppression to uh, a strategy of, of enabling. Um, thematically, I'm down for that. Um, but I think there's still, there's still Elab- some... Elaborate on what you mean. Well, meaning I, I, I totally uh, accept and, uh, and believe that we should emphasize uh, public spending in the, in the areas, um, in the line items, if you will, that are about helping people help themselves, right? Better schools, an innovation economy um, that grows out uh, to everybody, not just up to the well-connected investors and so forth. and and infrastructure broadly defined, right? Everything from healthcare uh, to roads, rails, bridges, and broadband, because that's the stuff the public bills that serves as a platform uh, for private uh, investment and personal ambition, right? That's how you that's how you make sustainable uh, growth. So if you if you can, you know, the the idea that we have underfunded those kinds of things. And instead, funded um, uh, excessive policing. In fact, the militariz- militarization of uh, of uh, policing. That imbalance is what I totally understand. And writing that balance, I totally support. Whether the answer to that is to simply take from police departments and give to um, to others, rather than trying to move past this, you know, zero sum game, which is what we've been doing for a long time, um, is the part I haven't quite worked out. I think, how do you make the job of a police officer right now in this climate for anybody who like wants to join the police force to actually make a positive impact? How do you make it more glamorous? Cause right now it's kind of like the worst job in the world. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> more glamorous, maybe not. I don't have an answer to, but more attractive to be sure. I mean, you know what? One of the things I feel um, uh, I feel sympathetic to is that you know, having worked with um, a number of professional, respectful um, police officers who show that respect and show restraint. I know it bothers them to have uh, the uh, the role of police writ large, so discredited right now. And I'm hoping that they are not made to feel so defensive that they um, swallow whole, uh, whole cloth, the worst dimensions of the culture that, um, that, need to be, that need to be eradicated. I thought it was a pretty extraordinary thing that the National Fraternal Order of, uh, of Police issued a statement condemning uh, the George Floyd killing. Um, in my experience, they and their local counterparts um, would in the past have been the last to do so. 
Um, and I think it is going to be critical that we have um, and that we elevate our allies in law enforcement as we start to, uh, you know, in leadership and rank and file uh, to be part of, uh, of reform. So I think if you are, uh, if you, if you are a, a uh, if you see yourself or aspire to be a true public servant, uh, you know, not a master over others, but a servant of the public, if you are uh, equipped to uh, um, and interested in the, uh, in the work of building relationships with people, even people who are different uh, than you, um, and opening yourself to understanding. Um, and if you are prepared to be, uh, to show real allegiance um, to the constitutional limits of your job and not excuse them, uh, as is so often uh, uh, the case, then that might be exactly the kind of candidate we need uh, to join uh, the ranks of police today. And so how do you create legislation where you allow police to do their jobs and not have to walk on eggshells while also mitigating just like ridiculous force? You know? Yeah. So some of that's some of that's going to be um, legislation. Some of that's going to be training. A lot of it is going to be example, right? We're going to show people what we're talking about, and that means again, uh, those uh, those members of the force and those members of police leadership who get it, if you will, um, need to be elevated. They need to be um, they need to be pointed to as examples of what effective and successful policing is. There are some nuts and bolts, and a lot of them um, uh, you've heard about or will hear about as some of the organizations put their, um, what we used to call list of non-negotiable demands uh, on the table. But there'll be things I, I would hope uh, about uh, uh, what we emphasize in training, um, things like de-escalation, restorative justice, and so forth. Um, I would hope um, that they, uh, that we would have, um, real accountability mechanisms, uh, for police, ones that aren't thwarted by the terms of, uh, uh, you know, some of the more extravagant terms in, um, in some of the, uh, police union contracts that aren't just, you know, overturned. You can fire someone because you think they're terrible, but they get their job back if they, uh, uh, um, appeal, um, because you haven't, uh, because the process hasn't been, you know, to the letter just so, um, I mean, there are things like that. You hear a lot about changing, uh, the rules around immunity that gets a little technical, but, um, elaborate. Well, it's, as I say, it gets a little technical It's probably, um, and I'm probably not uh, an expert enough, but today in many, uh, in many jurisdictions, most jurisdictions, uh, police are uh, personally immune from liability um, for excessive use of force. And the liability falls entirely on the jurisdiction they work for. The department, and yeah. On them, uh, on them uh, personally, and, uh, or, or, or rarely on them uh, personally. And there are, you know, there are calls to eliminate um, that qualified immunity and uh, and expose police officers to uh, to personal liability in every case. I'm not sure I'm all the way there yet, but I I get it. I get I get what that's uh, what that's about. We got to raise accountability 
because we've had so many incidents of people who have stepped over any reasonable line of decency and gone back to work the next day without many, if any, consequences. I just want to let my producers ask a couple questions. Is that all right? Sure. Hey, Slug, actually, B, you want to start? Sure. Um, so, Governor Patrick, I, I know Maybe. Um, we've talked a lot about police reform, and, and you also mentioned criminal justice reform, um, which thankfully actually has had some progress in recent years. Can you just say something um, about that and what's something important we can do to reform the criminal justice system? Sure, yeah. So a couple of things I'd say about the criminal justice system, because I understand that policing is very much connected uh, to that. And um, uh, the problem uh, with an encounter uh, with the police, even something that might be that might seem, you know, trivial in another uh, uh, under, you know, under different uh, circumstances means that you get caught up in a system that um, uh, has, you know, favored minimum mandatory sentencing, this whole tough on crime thing that we've been on has not actually made us safer, by the way, but it has led to the warehousing of a whole generation, particularly of black men. Um, and when you consider the fact that 95 plus percent of people who are in uh, jail or prison come out one day, and that while they have been in, in the last uh, couple of decades, we have defunded or, or entirely eliminated rehabilitation programs, training programs that enable them to get ready to rejoin productive life, that we have made it uh, impossible for them to come out and go home uh, to live with family if that family happens to live in public housing until they can get back on their, uh, on their feet that we have in many places permanently disenfranchised felons uh, so that they cannot vote when they come back uh, out. So they can't actually do that fundamental thing uh, that indicates um, uh, citizenship and invites you back into a stake in your own civic and political um, future. All these things are connected and all of that's gotta be fixed. We have to be focused on how to repair people, how to, how to give them a chance to find a way. There's this whole movement uh, described as restorative justice. It has a lot of traction in Boston right now, in Roxbury. Some marvelous leaders I got to know when I was in office who were, uh, who were pushing this about um, you know, how in policy, but also in practice, um, we, we, start, we start learning forgiveness. We start learning again about second and third chances. We start making a way for people to get back into productive, uh, into productive life when they, when they get out so that they can, they can move on and not be, not have so many of the forces, um, uh, around them causing them to do, um, you know, unproductive things again. I got the text from Patrice. I know I got to wrap it on up. I'm hey, sorry. no worries. Slugs, I'm here. Busy guy, man. Thank you so much for doing this, by the way. Thank you. Hey, Slugs, you want to get one off quick? Yeah, I was just wondering what, uh, going up to the topic of police or criminal justice reform, what was your experience like running for president? Huh. Well, 
You mean just in terms of, of criminal justice reform or just generally? I think she's saying quick pivot. Was yeah. it sick running for president? <laughs> it was, it was sick. It was sick. You know, we were, we came in later than everybody else, uh, almost everybody else. And, um, in many ways, um, you, you know, it was interesting to talk to people about being so-called late because nobody had yet cast a, uh, cast a vote. But there was so much focus on the, um, on the smartest way to be sure that we defeated Donald Trump. Um, and, you know, I get that because I think we are cursed with exactly the wrong leader for the moment we have. But in my experience, um, what Democrats uh, need to do to win is to focus more on what we're for than what we're against. And I think trying to get people to focus on that um, was, uh, was, a, was a challenge. They understood it. Um, they wanted to believe it. But uh, I think had we had more time, we'd made a lot more progress. Well, there's, just was, a, there's such a crazy polarity. Yeah. No, it's, know, true. it's Trump or no Trump right now. That's kind of just what everyone's thinking. That's, that's, that's right. And I, I just say, you know, beware, cause that's, that might not be enough. Do you want to run again? Maybe. Um, I'll come back on when I'm ready. Okay. All right. To answer that question. Uh, hey, right man. now I'm trying to help, uh, I'm trying to help, uh, the Biden campaign and, uh, and some candidates for the Senate and the house, especially those running in so-called red, red to blue districts or states where Democrats haven't competed um, before. Um, I think we've got some great opportunities and I want to try to lift these, uh, you know, elevate these, uh, these themes of generational responsibility, of servant leadership, of, you know, progress through community building that I think are critical um, to help redefine not just the Democratic Party, but what it means to be an American. Lexi, real quick, just because the governor's got to run, you got one? Yeah, Governor Patrick, I wanted to ask you, you said earlier that you believe economics, environment, and healthcare are all intrinsically connected to these issues we've been discussing. Uh, mm -hmm. Specifically speaking on healthcare, do you plan on working towards Medicare for All with your Together Fund path that you've been working on? Yeah, you know, I first of all, um, I'm going to continue to work for um, the success of progressive policies, and again, policies that, uh, including healthcare that enable people to help themselves. Um, the notion that, that all of our healthcare is tied to where we work and whether we work and whether we work enough hours and so forth and that it costs so much. Uh, and yet our outcomes are so poor um, in relative terms is, uh, uh, is a longstanding uh, um, uh, failure, I think, on our part. I think there's more than one way to get there. I happen to love the idea and favor the idea of a, of a public option um, in Obamacare. I would be fine with that, uh, with that option being Medicare. And the reason I say that, Alexi, is that um, I think we learn some things that would be important um, as we make a, a transition this big. One, there is not a doubt in my mind that the private uh, insurance uh, industry will figure out a competitive alternative um, to compete for all of those folks who will move from private insurance to the Medicare public option. Um, and that is important for driving system costs down. And I think you get a benefit on the public side too, because frankly, Medicare 
doesn't meet everybody's needs today. Um, and it needs to step up its game. And I think that competitive pressure um, between a public option and the private uh, insurance uh, industry will serve us in the long run as we learn how to close the gaps that, uh, that exist. So that I think should be the next step. And I think that'll probably get us a hundred percent of the way there. All right, sweet. So we got two ending bits real quick. The first one is called GDP sales mode. I'm going to pick up my phone. I'm going to put on the timer. You got 40 seconds. You got the floor to literally say whatever you want. Most people who are business related come up, they'll like pitch their product or their book or something like that. But I mean, you're, you're a pretty wise guy. So I got no clue where you're going to go with this one, but I'm here for it. Let me just, and I'll put my hand up when you got 10 seconds left. Okay. Okay. Patrice, I know, I know we got to wrap this up. I'm sorry. Three, two, one sales mode. So look, everybody, um, if the character of the candidates is an issue in every election cycle, this time is the character of the country. And I think it's going to be critical that everybody take responsibility, that you come out and you vote, that you vote up and down the ticket. I'd ask you to vote for Democrats, but frankly, vote for somebody. Um, we have got to understand we get the government we deserve. And if we want better government at all levels, if we want more humane, more compassionate, more engaged, more forward-looking gov government, then we have to invest the time and we have to hold those we elect accountable for delivering on what it is we ask them to do. All right, you got the celebrity treatment. You got 10 extra seconds, but that was a good <laughs> message. So we'll give it to you, man. Um, hey, this is how we start and end the show. And again, thank you so much. I learned a lot. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it, Connor. You be well. So this is how we start and end the show. You say, hi, your name, Deval Patrick, and this is my golden hour. Directly after, no break, hi, your name, and that was my golden hour. Okay, ready? Whenever. Hi, I'm Deval Patrick, and this is my golden hour. Bang. Hi, I'm Deval Patrick. You know what? Let me do that again. <laughs> This is Deval Patrick, and that was my golden hour. Well, take it, man. Hey, thank you so much, and right. I appreciate everything you're doing. I appreciate you. Take Patrice, care. Patrice, shouts out to you, too, and Ellen. All right. Thanks, Connor. One. Appreciate it. There you are. Hey, have a good Be one, everybody. Be well. Bye-bye.